out. This is July 16th, of course. Um, Paul's warnings, and there are four of them, and they're listed. False philosophy is one, and he warned against legalism, and he warned against angel worship, and he warned, warned against asceticism. And I talked about a, a more fuller definition last week about asceticism, but essentially it's an attempt to beat down the flesh by severe means. Those people that lie on the bed of nails and go up the steps of a, a Roman Catholic cathedral on their knees uh, or they uh, pierce their bodies or they do these very, they go without eating for days and this harsh, uh, very uh, stressful, and usually it's associated with monasticism, being in a monastery or something, but others do it to beat down the flesh. And that's that you can't beat down the flesh. You know, you can torture yourself endlessly and you cannot beat down the flesh. So uh, those are all things that Paul warned against. And he we're going to read that passage here. And if you'll follow along and. Colossians 2, we'll read 8 through 23. And I'm going to uh, tell you which sections are which. The first will be the philosophy, uh, philosophy uh, verses 8 through 15. And legalism is 16, to 7, 16 and 17. And that's in the handout. And angel worship is 18 or 19. And asceticism is verse 20 through 23. Okay. So beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all, that's Christ, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom, again, that's in Christ, in him, also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of the flesh, your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And now we're looking at legalism. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holiday or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. And 18 and 19 are angel worship. Let no man beguile you of the reward and a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Now we're looking at asceticism. Wherefore, 
If ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not at any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. And really, those things are, are uh, I wrote a note down here, these things are really a form of work, self-denial, to gain God's favor, and only Christ can atone for sin, not our works, not anything that we do to suppress the flesh. So, look at your handout at the uh, top. Um, we looked at false philosophy. In future weeks, we're going to look at legalism, angel worship, and asceticism. Um, and these are all things that, uh, the false teachers were promoting in lieu of promoting Christ. As you know, all the cults and false religions always work to um, to do anything they can to push down Christ and not recognize him as God in the flesh. So the warning against philosophy, I didn't write the whole thing out. I, I just wanted to get the point. The, the warning is beware lest any man take you captive and lead you astray through philosophy and empty trickery, okay, vain deceit. Uh, simply stated, the false teaching, particularly the false teaching philosophy of the heretics, was not in accord or agreement with the truth as revealed in Christ. And Christ is the true test of theology. And he's the absolute standard of measurement for all doctrine. When, when I used to fly as a crew member, we would all take our watches and we would, we would they call it hack. <laughs> we, we would put them against the measurement of the atomic clock, and that was transmitted from Fort Collins, Colorado, WWV. I don't know if that still exists. It may. But, you know, and uh, he, he chucked the going, yeah, that's what we used to do. And so we'd all be on the same clock, and, all, and that was the standard. Well, uh, and I talked about last week about the Lord Jesus Christ being the North Star or the Pole Star as an unfailing reference to true north. And the Lord Jesus Christ is our standard measurement for doctrine. So if it's not according with, not accordance with what Christ taught us and the revelation of God regarding his son, then we must reject it. Now, unfortunately, when I wrote this, I didn't, hadn't planned to talk about justification. So you see item B there says justification. That's used in the non uh, non-justification sense, not the non-theological word sense. What I'm trying to say is the rationale, reasoning, or basis. So if you want to mark that out and write basis, that would be good. So the basis and foundation of the warning in verses 9 through 15. Now, don't miss this because I think this is really, I like organization. Don't you like it when things just kind of go like this, you know, and you say, oh, I see how that works. It all connects this way. And so that's what I love about studying the scriptures. I can say, oh, that's how that works. So verse nine talks about the foundation is uh, the supremacy and, and actually the deity of Christ. Now, his warning is founded upon Christ's singular or soul and unshared supremacy. He's without equal. He is above all. 
He's preeminent. And that's the basis of Christ is, and that's the basis and foundation of the warning that he gives him. Don't get distracted by philosophy. Now, verses 10 through 15 talk about, and they speak to Christ's absolute sufficiency and his capability and his qualification to meet man's needs. So it's sufficiency and humanity. So we have the supremacy in deity, and we have the sufficiency in humanity in verses 10 through 15. Now this is overlaid into in the section where there's a warning, and it's actually in that first section about philosophy. And I gave you this quote last week that I really love. F.F. Bruce said, Christ is all and he's all you need. You know, how simple is that? He is in, Christ is all, and he's all you need. And I added, Christ is the sole source for what you need. So I put a note there, and I circle mine in red. The impact of the passage in verses 9 through 15, because of Christ, who Christ is, he's God. And what we find in him, soul sufficiency to meet our needs, any other tradition of man, including philosophy, legalism, angel worship, asceticism, is false because it's not after Christ. All else is false teaching. All else is erroneous and all else is heresy. Now I wrote that down in the handout and the reason I did that is because you may miss what I say because you might be thinking about what's for lunch, right? (laughs) Or what the pastor is going to preach on or when this is going to end and how soon it's going to end. But I want you to have this here so you can look back over it and see it. And also I did this because we used to send them out to people at home and occasionally. And so they had these things to look at because they couldn't raise their hand and say, what did he say? Okay, but you can. You can raise your hand and say, what did he say? So now there are three positive affirming statements that Paul mentions in verses 9 and 10, which relate to Christ as being supreme and sufficient, which form the. Let's change that word justification to basis so I don't confuse anybody. The basis. Form the basis. You see that statement just above the full deity of Christ there? Justification. Change that to basis. To form the basis and foundation for his warning. So he's going to say three things, three statements. The first one is, he says, verse 9, the full deity of Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. I'm going to get to bodily in just a minute. So this verse is one of the clearest statements of the deity of Christ. And this passage is considered one of the clearest statements of the deity of Christ in, in Scripture. And it's, all Scripture is important, but this really shows us who Christ is. Uh, and it, tends, it, it is continuing the theme, the last sentence on page 1, it continues the theme of the fullness of, mentioned in Colossians 1.19, that in him all fullness should dwell. That's verse 19. We, we looked at that earlier. Now, let's go to the top of page 2 in your, your goldenrod handout. This color. Okay. Everybody has a handout, right? Good. Thanks. Paul takes the word fullness, which is the Greek word pleroma. And I talked about that, last, I think, last week. That's a word that had about three different meanings, and and it was it was so philosophical. I, I I was looking at trying to figure out what what the Gnostics believed. This is what we think the heresy was that Paul was 
confronting. I got depressed reading about it. Really, I just had, and I'm a kind of a more positive person. Cindy goes, really? (laughs) Generally speaking, (laughs) love that. (laughs) Spousal feedback is important for humility. Okay, so, um, but I really, it was talk about a downer. I thought, what in the world are they saying? And it was just incredible. And I'd read this and it'd say something that contradicted this because they had divisions within that. And so I, I was glad I could come back to the word and I just got as much little as I could. But I wanted to make sure I was telling you what pleroma was because Paul takes that word that they use to describe heaven I saw one guy said it was heaven. Another person said it was, same guy said, also it's what you can develop within yourself here that's like heaven or something like that. And then another one said that it's all the essence, all the characteristics and qualities that they see in a God. And so Paul turns that around and said, listen, that's not right. He takes their word that they were using and he properly uses it to describe Christ as God. In Christ, all the Godhead dwells bodily. Okay, So Christ is the real fullness of the Godhead, the very essence of God. And it means that he is God. Christ is not merely God-like. He is God. So... Gnostics taught that deity was seen or made known through a filter of angelic beings occupying the space between heaven and earth. Paul said Christ is God and the full and complete expression, revelation, and essence of God. Therefore, any other teaching is false and after a tradition of men. Now that really helps us now. Because we could see cults when they deny some aspect of the deity of Christ and say that he's not the second person of the Trinity or he was, as some cults say, he was the half-brother of Satan. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff. When you really find out what they believe, and then you say, that's wrong. So uh, the second statement is, the first statement was uh, the deity of Christ and Uh, when he said, for in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead. And then the second part of that verse, I said it already, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So note in your handout, the top of page two, under number two, the note there says, Christ is God in the flesh. And the theologians say that's incarnate, in the flesh. Carne is meat. So uh, I think, And so incarnate means in the flesh. God, Christ is God in the flesh. Christ was also God with with God the Father in eternity past. That's the pre-incarnate God. That's before he was in the flesh. John 1 and 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. When Christ the Word, who is God, was clothed with flesh... That is, he became incarnate. He was still Christ who was God. So Christ is fully human and fully divine. That's a significant truth 
that we can't understand or explain, much like the Trinity, that it's called a hypostatic union. We talked about that last week. The, it's very important to theology because if you say it was not not fully divine, then we don't have we don't have a God. If if you say he's not fully human, then his sacrifice of the Christ, uh, cross was not valid. So the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, that's John 1.14. The third statement is the sufficiency of Christ. By sufficiency, we're saying that he was fully able to do what we, the Bible says that he did. He was fully able to die on the cross for our sins. He's fully able to be a spotless Lamb of God, live sinlessly his entire life. And, um, and it says, you are complete, that's full, that's that same word, pleroma, you are complete in him who is, now I've got, a, I've got an error here. I know, I know it's frightened you that I made an error, but I did. So I, I wrote who is thee twice. So you scratch one of those out. You can do the first one or the second one, doesn't matter. Okay. Who is the head of all principality and power. So because Christ is fully God and fully man, we are made full or complete as we share in his fullness in him in union with him. Only as we are joined to Christ is this fullness ours. The main point is that Christ, in Christ, our every spiritual need is met because of the resources made available to us in him. Possessing him, Curtis Vaughn, I love some of these quotes. They help me crystallize the thought. Possessing him, because we possess Christ, we possess all. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Believers are complete in Christ both positionally by the imputed perfect righteousness of Christ and by the completed sufficiency and the complete sufficiency of all heavenly resources for spiritual maturity. Christ makes uh, he our his, our sins are, are imputed to him and his righteousness is imputed to us and we have all the heavenly resources that the Lord can help us. We can develop the character of Christ. We can be like him and we can serve him and please him. Now, this is the point that I'm going to... So press pause... That doesn't mean I'll stop talking. It just means we're going to stop on the outline. <laughs> so press pause. And I want to t now, based on the fact of the question that was asked about justification, imputation. Now, everybody should have the second handout. Do you, everybody have the, these two? Okay, good, good. Okay. So look. go to the one justification by faith. Uh, and this is by John MacArthur. And from grace to you. Now, um, what I love about John MacArthur is it's available. He's got an app and a website with all his messages and a lot of other stuff on there. And I have a book called um, A Systematic Summary of Biblical Truth, Biblical Doctrine by John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew, which is like a summary of systematic theology. 
because occasionally, is that right? And you want to go look that up because people use tricky language to try to hide that they're omitting something. Like they say, the Bible uh, contains the word of God. And they use that as a euphemism to say that, well, it contains it, but it isn't the word of God in every word, the plenary plenary uh, word of God. So every every word is inspired. So in the original manuscript. So I, I that's why I have a, a, a doctrinal summary so I can go and look those things up and see if something's right or wrong. So uh, I want to look at justification in relationship to imputation and also as a side benefit we're going to look at a contrast between justification and sanctification now we say those things all the time but and i want you to know what they mean because that will help you to understand what god has done for you and also uh sanctification what he's doing for you okay and uh and it's also good to know these things because it helps us guard ourselves against error so i'm just going to go through the handout with you when a jury foreman reads the verdict, MacArthur says, the defendant is no longer the accused. And I thought, well, yeah, he's still the accused. No. And, but no, legally and officially, he instantly becomes either guilty or innocent, depending on the verdict. Nothing in his actual nature changes, but if he's found not guilty, he'll walk out of court a free person in the eyes of the law, fully justified. So in biblical terms, MacArthur says justification is a divine verdict. And you could think of it like a legal, it's a legal proclamation. It's a divine verdict of not guilty, fully righteous. Now, he said it's the reversal of God's attitude toward the sinner. Whereas formerly he was condemned, um, what, the, the wages of sin is death. He now vindicates, God vindicates. Although the sinner once lived under God's wrath, as a believer, he or she now is under God's blessing. Third paragraph on the handout, Justification by Faith. Justification is more than a simple pardon. Pardon alone would still leave the sinner without merit before God. So when God justifies, and here's where imputation comes in, he imputes divine righteousness to the sinner. Now, somebody, Betty, you've got four Romans four twenty-two through twenty-five. If anybody, if you want to talk, turn there and follow you, or you can just listen. Romans four twenty-two through twenty-five. Therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also. Whom it shall be imputed. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Amen. Thank you for reading that. So, uh, we're not going to look at every scripture, but I wanted to read the scripture because that's more important than what I say. Um, <clears throat> So, uh, Christ, right in the middle of the paragraph that starts with justification in the middle of the page, Christ's own infinite merit, 
becomes the ground on which the believer stands before God. Um, Romans 5.19. Steve, please. For as one man's, uh, one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Yes. Amen. Thank you. And in Philippians 3 9, Chuck. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, so the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So justification elevates a believer to a realm of full acceptance and privilege in Jesus Christ. We're going to talk more about imputation in, on, on the second handout. So I just want to continue on this handout to keep the thought. <clears throat> but briefly, um, when a sinner comes before God and he accepts Christ, accepts the sacrifice that Christ has made on the cross, he admits his sin, accepts Christ as his personal Savior, uh, legally... Uh, the verdict is um, not guilty. And the righteousness that comes into play is the righteousness that is imputed to him. Our sins are imputed to Christ, and his righteousness is imputed to us. So it's a wonderful thing. And, okay, there, so now, um, last paragraph. Therefore, because of justification, believers are not only perfectly free <clears throat> from any charge of guilt, but also have the full merit of Christ reckoned, and that's the underlying word for Im imputation or imputed. It's an accounting term. It means to account uh, or to reckon or to put on an account. Reckoned to their personal account uh, and Romans 5, 17, I think that's Steve again. Uh, for if by one man's offense death reigneth by one, much uh, more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, so other things flow out of justification. Uh, we're sons and daughters, fellow heirs. We're united with Christ, so we become one with Him. We are therefore in Christ, and He in us. That's Colossians 1.27. And then turn to page 2 of that handout, <clears throat> how justification and sanctification differ. Now, sanctification, I don't have a uh, theological definition, but sanctification is after we're saved. That's the process of us working out our salvation and that's the process of, of us becoming holy, being set apart for God, for His use, and becoming like Him. So that's where works come in after salvation. That's the fruit that we sow. And also the character, we're to become like Christ and be like it in His image. So how do they differ? Justification is distinct or separate, it's different from sanctification because in justification, God does not make the sinner righteous. Justification, he doesn't make the sinner righteous. He declares, remember this is like a judicial type thing, he declares that person righteous. In Romans 3.28, Alice, please. 
Okay. So notice how justification and sanctification are distinct from one another uh, and, and when we look at these three bullets and the handout. Justification imputes Christ's righteousness to the sinner's account. And sanctification imparts righteousness to the sinner personally and practically. Uh, and by that he means as, as we grow in grace and we serve the Lord and the Holy Spirit works in us to, do, to manifest the fruit of the Spirit and, and gives us the power to become like Christ. So we have in justification... Uh, the righteousness is imputed to us. So our standing before God, when the judge looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. We're clothed in that righteous robe that, that's Christ that he sees. And that's, that's what... The, but as far as sanctification, our actual uh, living day to day, you don't become perfect the day... You don't become perfect in everything you're doing the day after salvation. You grow in grace and sanctification is that lifelong process of learning more, becoming more like Christ, serving him, giving him more and growing. So justification imputes Christ's righteousness to the sinner's account and sanctification imparts righteousness to the sinner per personally and practically. Uh, the second item, second bullet, justification takes place outside sinners and changes their standing while sanctification is internal and changes the believer's state. So the state is where you are right now. And the standing is how you stand before God, having been judged and receiving Christ's righteousness. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. Good to know those things. Good to be reminded of them. Oh, yes, Sheila. Yes. Yes. All of that. Being, growing in grace, growing in maturity, Working out your salvation in fear and trembling, serving the Lord, um, all the following His commands, uh, loving one another, serving one another, praying for one another, caring for one another, winning people to Christ, becoming more Christ-like. Better said. Thank you. Justification is an event. Sanctification is a process. Now that really helped me. I said, oh yeah, okay. Legally, you know, if I go to a court, that's an event. And justification is a, is a proclamation and an event, a declaration by God. Sanctification is a lifelong process. And so a lot of people, this is important because a lot of people get sanctification mixed up with salvation and they say you need to be sinlessly perfect in order to go to heaven and we don't believe in sinless perfection we don't believe that you don't sin after you're saved that's impossible and so we believe that we're declared to be righteous before God and then we grow in grace and to become like Christ okay so here yeah 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 amen this is a sinful world. Look at the definition. So you're the theologian, okay? <laughs> you're the theologian. 
And that's why we're, we're looking at these things. So, as a result of salvation, by grace, through faith, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. The definition of justification, that instantaneous act of God, whereby, as a gift, it's a free gift, you can't work for it, of His grace, unmerited favor, not by, not by works again, He imputes, He reckons to the account of a believing sinner the full and perfect righteousness of Christ through faith alone. That was a rallying cry of the Reformation. Martin Luther, by, uh, salvation is through faith alone, not of works. Remember the Catholic Church was selling uh, indulgences. You could sin all you want if you pay this much money. <laughs> That's true. And they were making a lot of money. So through, <laughs> through, through faith alone, and it's, okay, so instantaneous effect, of God, whereby as a gift of His grace, God imputes to a believing sinner the full and perfect righteousness of Christ through faith alone and legally declares the sinner, the believer now, perfectly righteous in His sight, in God's sight, forgiving the sinner of all unrighteousness and thus delivering him from condemnation, eternal condemnation and hell. And that definition is from Systematic Summary of Biblical Truth, Biblical Doctrine. Great big book by John MacArthur Mayhew. Yes? I think I heard him preaching and he doesn't believe in how people are saved. Yeah. Because he said, well, they can't be saved. Yeah. I hadn't come across that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I don't know why that is. Uh, I, he, I know he probably has a good reason. I don't agree with him on everything, but what I like is his stuff's readily available, and a lot of it's easy to understand. And everybody disagrees with something here or there, but on the fundamentals, pretty good. Um, so let's look at the second handout. We're going to have that in the second handout here about what you mentioned. Okay, so here is a definition. And Pastor and I had a discussion about this. Um, I had him look at this and he agreed with it. <clears throat> but what we, what we can't figure out is, I'll tell you when we get to it, the definition. The doctrine of imputation. I wanted to look at that. The doctrine of imputation teaches that while Adam's sin is imputed to us because he's our federal He's our natural federal head. In other words, when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, we are Adam's descendants. We inherited his nature. His nature became sinful. And now we're sinners by nature and practice, but we're sinners by nature. God imputed uh, to us as the descendants of Adam, uh, Romans 5.12 tells us that, that, that our natures became sinful and now we are in need of a Savior because we're sinners by practice. And then um, he, because, okay, that doctrine there's, tells you that there are three different imp imputed things. Uh, God imputes to us uh, the sin because of, of Adam, sinfulness, and he also uh, imputes or accredits the righteousness and suffering of Jesus to those who are in him. 
And also he imputes the sins of those redeemed to Christ. So there's three, and we're going to do, he's going to say that again three times. But the thing that we couldn't understand is why the word suffering is in there. Couldn't figure that out. Because I've always heard righteousness, but why would his Christ's suffering need to be imputed to us? And so I would say mark that out. Because when it's mentioned, that's, I know these guys have a good reading. The guy's name is J.V. Fesco, and he's a seminary professor at a, a school up in, I think, Oregon and, uh, or Washington. So <clears throat> I would like to uh, um, say that Christ accredits or imputes his righteousness to us and God imputes our sins to him because we've had Adam's sin imputed to us. So, and if I come across why that is in my research, I'll let you know. Okay, what's the summary of the doctrine of imputation? It teaches that while Adam's sin is imputed to us because he's our natural federal head, God imputes, imputes or credits the righteousness and suffering of Jesus to those that are in him. And conversely, he imputes the sins of the redeemed to Christ. So I'm saved. My sins are imputed to Christ and he has already died on the cross and he he bears them. And this is across time and his righteousness is imputed to me. So when God sees me, God, the judge, he can say, I see your righteousness in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. And already I'm in that state because I have um, I have I'm Adam's descendant. And also I'm not only I inherit that sinful nature, but I am also a sinner by practice. So both double whammy. And so uh, essentially in, in, in a manner of speaking, God has imputed Adam's sin to us as well. Okay, so where we were, we were, uh, imputation is, but he goes on to talk about how imputation is actually foreshadowed in a lot of the um, uh, Old Testament uh, sacrificial uh, practices. And he talks about the um, um, Day of Atonement where sins of the people are transferred to a scapegoat and uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah um, um, provide clear foundations for the doctrine so they're listed here again Adam's sin was imputed to all of humanity the Christian sin is imputed to Christ and Christ's righteousness is imputed to Christians and the latter two of these interpretation Martin Luther famously called the glorious exchange our sin for Christ's righteousness now if you remember uh, the the folks that came here called the exchange and they taught a manner of uh, witnessing called the exchange and they call themselves the exchange. That's where that came from. Our sins for Christ's righteousness. What a bargain. <laughs> what a wonderful thing. No wonder Martin Luther uh, was excited when he discovered that. So, because the Catholic Church taught differently, which we'll look at in just a minute. And he says, such a truth is a balm. And a balm means a medicine that healed, heals. Such truth is a healing medicine to the Christian who fears standing in the presence of a holy God wearing nothing but sin-stained garments. So if you look at the middle, the part that I've highlighted, the doctrine of imputation teaches that 
in the doctrine of justification, God imputes or credits the righteousness and suffering of Jesus to those who are in him and conversely imputes the sins of those redeemed to Christ. And Martin Luther called this the double imputation, the glorious exchange. What is ours becomes Christ and what is Christ becomes ours. And the, do the doctrine has roots in the Old Testament and it fully flowers in the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters. So there's a conclusion here and it just wraps up what was in the top part. This is a long article a definition, summary, and then a body of text where he, he develops all of the things in the Old Testament and New Testament that talk about imputation. Then I just added the conclusion you have here. Um, if you look down, it mentions question 60 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, in the old days, and even Baptists had this, when you became a Christian and you often became a part of a church, they would have something called a catechism, which um, is a series uh, of statements defining what we believe. And it's kind of, we call it statement of faith. But they'd also have questions to teach young people primarily. Uh, what is the chief end of man. Well, the chief end of man is to love God and enjoy him forever. Give, the, uh, uh, give God the glory and enjoy him forever. And that's the Westminster Catechism. Well, this one said, how are you righteous before God? And then it responds, only by true faith in Jesus Christ, even though my conscience acute conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them and still being inclined toward all evil nevertheless without any merit of my own out of sheer grace God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction righteousness and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me all I need to do to accept this gift, uh, all I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. And he, he mentions that statement about that's a bomb to the trembling sinner standing before God with no defense and uh, sin-stained garments. Now, I, I tend to believe that, that God, because it mentions our sins are... are put in the ocean as far and they're as far as the east is from the west so in response to your question earlier I tend to think God sees us perfectly as if we had not sinned but I would bow to MacArthur's wisdom if there's a better compelling reason for that certainly there's no re reason for pride but it, but it's uh, based it's the purity of the forgiveness based on Christ's complete perfection so I wouldn't want to so everything you believe in, if you overemphasize one area of theology, it has ramifications later on in something else. So you always want to, if you have to err, err on the side of the deity of God and giving him the glory rather than any, any part of man. So questions on justification, imputation, or sanctification? I know people don't like theology, but you know it matters 
because what we believe is how we will live. And if we believe God is the ultimate and the Lord Jesus Christ is preeminent and he is over all, then we will honor him with our lives. But if we approach God with a casual atmosphere, I'll, get a, I'll, I'll deal with you when I feel like it uh, and have a, a non-gracious attitude towards God, I don't think God will bless that. So I think it's important what we believe and know what we believe so that we can recognize error and also in our own lives that we can make a, a more concerted effort to be like Christ. Okay, uh, I'm going to stop there and... Uh, if anybody has a question, doesn't want to ask it now, ask it later. Feel free to do that. I promise I won't do a 45-minute presentation on it. I Say again. I didn't get to read my verse. Oh, read your verse. I thought you read it, Sheila. I'm sorry. Right. So belief is necessary before we receive the righteousness of Christ. And it's not works. And the reason I skipped you is because I skipped the passage because of time in the middle because we had, he'd gone over it already a couple of times. And the conclusion was a repetition of the summary. So uh, sorry about that. Thank you for that's a good verse. That's important. It's more important than what I was saying. Thank you. Okay. So you have those things. You can look at them later and, and think about them. So let's close now. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of looking at your word. We cannot fathom how the Lord Jesus Christ could die on the cross for our sins and that we could be clothed with his righteousness before you. We recognize, Father, that we are needy people. But you have enabled us to be able to please you by giving us a new nature at the time of salvation that we'll talk about next week that helps us to be able to please you in all that we do and say. We no longer are limited because of this, the old nature and the flesh and that we're only able to serve the world, the flesh, and the devil. Thank you, Father, for what you have done for us in salvation. It just staggers our minds, and we are so humbled by your love for us. Father, we pray that we would reflect that love to our brothers and sisters in Christ, that you'd be with all those that are at home and can't be with us, all those that are sick and hurting. We pray, Father, that you would uh, comfort those that are ill, you'd be, impart safety for those that are traveling. Bless each family represented here. I pray that you would be with us, encourage us, strengthen us, and give us a sense of loving your word and understanding your word and help impart to us your wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.